On this episode of ADE Spotlight Podcast, I had the pleasure to speak with Amy Hostinsky, who is the lead clinician for OnSite here in Michigan. We've been partners with OnSite for a number of years, so I was excited to have this opportunity to speak to Amy, where I thought we could look at issues uh, related to the relationship between substance abuse providers and the criminal justice system. Uh, Amy had a lot of very interesting things to say. I think you're going to enjoy uh, listening to this as much as I enjoyed participating in it. Amy, I want to thank you for being with us today. Uh, This series of podcasts is something that we've been doing for uh, maybe close to 18 months now. We've had a lot of fun with it. We've learned a lot of, uh, we've learned a lot. We've talked to folks about a, a number of issues ranging from opiates and marijuana to acupuncture and breast cancer and natural medicine and fetal alcohol syndrome. So uh, this is just another uh, opportunity to talk for some to, with somebody who knows um, a little bit more than we do about certain topics. So today I thought we could talk a little bit about your work with uh, on-site in your work with uh, specifically uh, court-ordered clients. Uh, although we can branch out from there, I am interested in the relationship between um, the, the court system and folks who need substance abuse treatment and or mental health it's treatment. A, it's, a, it's a very interesting dynamic for sure. I have a, in my office here, I have a bumper sticker um, I don't quite recall where I picked it up, but I I put it up uh, uh, on a bulletin board that I have in my office, and it says "Drug Courts Work." And you know that sentiment, I think, is a noble one. And uh, as I see uh, drug courts in action, uh, DUI courts, or drug courts, or veterans court, or any of these sort of special specialty courts, or accountability courts. Uh, it does uh, bring to mind that relationship between um, um, the the court system, where there is a public safety interest, versus the individual's need for uh, rehabilitation and substance use treatment, all that kind of stuff. So uh, that's kind of the overall view of of what I'd like to talk to you about today. But can you just start with tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us a little bit about your experience, what it is that you do. Um, how long have you been doing it, all, all that kind of stuff? Sure. So I started in the field in 2008. Um, I started an internship at an inpatient drug rehabilitation place. So I started there, and I, I just loved it. It was awesome to be able to work with people who were, at the, in that setting, were motivated to receive help. They wanted to make some changes to their lifestyle. So I started there, and then my second job after I finished my bachelor's degree was also at an inpatient facility, but it was in um, a more upper-class area. So it was interesting to see the change in dynamics between people coming to rehab with no money and then people also coming in with funds and having more resources available. And just after that is when I started on-site in 2012. Uh, Tell us a little bit about on-site. Now, just for the folks who are listening, you are in the state of Michigan. Tell us a little bit about what OnSite does. So OnSite is a drug testing facility as well as a counseling facility. That's one of the things that makes us really unique. We have OnSite substance abuse testing and New Frontier Counseling Services. So I work as far as the lead clinician as New Frontier Counseling Services. And the nice part is we get to work together. So if I have clients who come in from the court for drug testing, I have an opportunity to monitor their drug testing results in real time as I'm doing their counseling services. As far as the counseling services go, we do so many different things. We do evaluations that range from a substance abuse evaluation, mental health evaluations, evaluations for Department of Transportation for people who may have experienced licensing issues due to having positive drug screens. Um, we 
to anger management classes, domestic violence classes, cognitive behavioral education, retail fraud classes, handgun prevention classes, which has been an interesting learning experience for me. We also do substance abuse treatment, mental health treatment, couples counseling, a whole range of things. But it seems like a lot to keep straight, Amy. <laughs> it can be. I definitely have a lot of curriculum and basic ideas, and I love the diversity of it. And it is through uh, your work in OnSite that uh, that you became familiar with ADE, and, and uh, that's, that's sort of the connection we have here between between you and I. You work with our friend Terry Brown. Those of you who have listened to previous podcasts may recall the conversation that we had with Terry. Uh, that would that was uh, that was pretty interesting. Well, I say Terry's great. I love working for him. He always has so many great new ideas. Yeah, we, we really enjoy being a partner with him. I want to go back to uh, your first job, which coincidentally was the same as mine, and that is in an inpatient facility. Now, um, I, I, this, mine preceded yours by a couple of decades, but in, in the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s, when I was involved in inpatient treatment, we had a, a sort of a standard length of stay that was 28 days. And people came, now this is an oversimplification, but they came and they stayed for 28 days, almost whether they needed it or not. It was a sort of a standard four-week uh, treatment, which uh, was great. I, I enjoyed every minute of it, uh, but uh, very expensive. Uh, and there was, uh, at that time, sort of beginning to be a movement to justify lengths of stay. And I would imagine by the time you got involved 20 years later, the length of stay was considerably shorter than 28 days. Is that correct? At my first job, um, which was in Detroit, it, there was we had more access to block grants and like some cut and stuff. There was a little bit more openness, but most clients were about the 28-day stay. But my second um, place for my second job, which was about two years later, was 14 days. And it was a fight to get 14 days at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I completely support what you say. It was a, it was a great experience for me. And um, uh, this is probably true for you, but all these years later, a lot of the lessons I learned uh, in the, it, working in that inpatient program still hold true today. I find myself referring back to those days uh, quite a bit. Definitely. Uh, but, you know, the, even back then, there was this idea of, uh, of motivating clients to get involved in treatment. And this idea that uh, you sort of had to raise the bottom for them, or this idea that... Um, People, you know, people didn't come into treatment on their own. I had a, uh, this is not a, a, a phrase that I coined, but it's one that I borrowed. I still use it frequently now. And, and somebody said back in those days that nobody comes to treatment on their own. It's one of the four L's. It's my liver, my lover, my livelihood, or the law. One or more of those is put exerting pressure on me to come into treatment. And, uh, you know, you keep that, if we keep that pressure on, uh, eventually uh, people may become self-motivated and, and continue on from there. So it's always been interesting to me the dynamic between those external forces, uh, specifically the court system that, <clears throat> you know, putting enough uh, pressure and motivation on an individual until they're motivated themselves. Um, I don't know that that that, <clears throat> that that's always a fair statement, but uh, it seems to encapsulate the idea. I was uh, in general. I would say yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> is it true that that then the majority of your clients are referred by the court system? Yes, that is correct. And you have, I would imagine, uh, 
a number of courts feeding clients to you? Yeah, we have some courts that we work with. We have more clients than others, but I have worked with courts all over the state because sometimes people from around here are saying they go up to Lansing for a weekend at Michigan State and then they live over here so they get referred for services at our agency. How is that how is that relationship between you and the court personnel handled? How does how does that work? Um, typically, we communicate a lot through phone call or email or fax. Um, the court has certain expectations from us that, and it's important to us to follow those expectations for the clients because us communicating with the court allows better outcomes for the clients. The court knows that the client is following through, that they're working on obtaining benefits from treatment. Also, the courts will let us know if they have any concerns about the client. Um, with testing, let's say the client doesn't test at our agency but tests somewhere else, we keep, we're aware of what's going on there. The, so uh, a client is convicted of some alcohol or drug-related offense uh, as part of... Typically. As part of their sanctions, they need to be evaluated or they, they may be required to submit to alcohol and or drug testing, or perhaps if it's a domestic violence, uh, they may have to go to couples counseling or, or anger management. Um, is, that's typically how they come to you? They were charged, they go through the court process, you know, from arraignment, pre-sentencing, all of that. They get charged, and usually many of the court, um, like I said, court sanctions will be drug and alcohol testing, but also some type of either education or a treatment program, you know, a standard outpatient treatment. When you say standard outpatient treatment, for, for somebody who, who isn't at all familiar with this world, what does that mean? So what I tell clients is if you are ordered to do outpatient treatment, standard length is about 12 sessions, um, three months or so, depending on if you're attending every week, which is preferred. It could go longer. I've had clients, in fact, with sobriety court, I've had clients that have seen me for two years um, and seen me two years from you know, once a week, maybe every other week. But ultimately, if you are ordered to do outpatient treatment at a court, it is my experience that about 12 weeks is your base level. Is that individual counseling or group counseling, Amy? It can be either or, um, sometimes individual, sometimes group, sometimes both. Um, it just depends on what's best for the client. Some people do better in groups because they get to see the experiences of others. And I find, especially with my um, groups for the clients I have on probation, it's really enjoyable because the clients feel a little less isolated. They see that they're not the only ones going through these court sanctions, having to do testing, um, having a community service is a big requirement that a lot of people have, so it gives them a chance to find out um, where to go, what works best, and also just the um, peer pressure. That's been a group that's been coming up lately in a lot of my groups. How do you deal with not being able to drink with your friends when you have a court order telling you you can't, and maybe your friends don't always understand that? Um, do you, is it your responsibility to make that decision as to whether they need individual or group? Does the court sort of leave that open to you? Yes, it's usually left open to me. Are, do you find that the courts are generally uh, receptive to your recommendations? Yes, I have never really had a problem with a court accepting my recommendation, and there's always things to back up my recommendation. So when a client comes in, they get what's called an intake assessment or a biopsychosocial, and then that's where we get to know the client, all the different aspects of their life, and based on that, we have a better idea of where to fit them. When, um, when you do that initial evaluation, uh, I, I'm just imagining that the client, the client's coming to you from the court and they're not really sure uh, what's going to happen. So I would imagine that they come in the door with some, uh, maybe sometimes some anger about having to do this in the first place or some paranoia about what's going to happen 
if I tell you the truth about my drug and alcohol use or other things? Um, is, yeah. is that is that fair? Is that is that your experience? Yes, um, very much so. So uh, typically, I see a few different things. Um, definitely a guarded, a guardedness. They feel afraid that if they're truly honest with me, I'm going to go back to the court and say, oh, you know, they've told me all of these things that they're doing. Although a lot of times courts will do what's called a pre-sentence investigation. So a lot of the history that they tell me they've already given to the court. But if they maybe misrepresented some of the truth, they may be tempted to do the same with me. So one of the first things we do is we go over an informed consent to treatment. So the idea with that is just there are limitations to what I can report to the court. I cannot necessarily go to the court and say, this client told me he drinks every day for, he's drank every day for the past two years. That's not something I can necessarily say. I might say to the court, I really, all I will say is that the client's participating. So all we can typically report to the court is like attendance, if they stopped attending, and then general cooperation, because confidentiality is a very important thing and a very important part of this process. The client has to know that things will be kept confidential, and we are ultimately looking out for the best interest of them as far as the counseling goes, so they can get the most out of the process. Confidentiality, you, you mentioned. There are, um, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, about that, how clients are protected by federal law when it comes to confidentiality. Uh, the, you know, I think many people are familiar with HIPAA guidelines, but they, they would be less familiar with some of the other guidelines specific to substance use. Can you, can you speak on that? I sure can. So yeah, there's definitely a whole other side. So you have HIPAA, like we talked about, but then there's also confidentiality regulations put out for specifically substance abuse and mental health services. So if people are interested, if you look up um, 42 CFR Part 2, that is um, very specific to the rules and regulations of things that we can go over to or we can give to the court system. Now, the is the you know the the fact that the individual is involved in the court system though is is that um, is their confidentiality any different than somebody who would voluntarily come to you without uh, having gone through the court system? The biggest difference would just be that the court is, does have an expectation of some kind of update typically once a month. While it is general, like I said, just attendance, cooperation level, um, that is something if a client came in on their own, I wouldn't necessarily have to be updating anybody. I would just be, they would be going through their treatment. Here with the court system, the courts need to know that the client is attending and participating. Is the client required to give authorization for you to do that? No, the client is not required to. There is a confidentiality they release that they sign that goes into exactly what will be disclosed to the court. It does outline some of the CFR rules, um, but they are always right to not sign that, and then I cannot update the court on anything. Though, for the clients, they don't typically not sign it because they also want the courts to know that they're doing what they're supposed oh. to. They want to get through probation. Right, right. Um but even even for court mandated clients, they have to give you authorization to release that information. Correct. Uh, now, yes. failing to do so probably is not in their best interest. But and and as you say, they probably don't do that. But they still are uh, have to sign a release of information for you to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Does that uh, when you explain that process? Do you think that's uh, well understood by your clients? Does it help with the, yes, um, the the fear of disclosure? It helps immensely. A lot of times when clients first come in, before we, like the first two minutes where we haven't even gotten into that, you can tell they're very guarded, walls up, not sure what to expect. And then once we start going into all of that, you'll know, really say, oh, okay, that's good to know. Or they'll be much more open after we have that conversation. Yeah. Um. 
are there any exceptions to that? In other words, in a scenario where you may be counseling somebody where you feel that they're at risk or or somebody else may be at risk, how do you handle that? Oh, I'm glad that you asked. So one of the, I don't say speeches I give, but one of the things I explain to the clients is that while there's confidentiality, there is a limit. If you threaten to hurt yourself, if you threaten to hurt someone else, um, if we feel that you're in a medical crisis situation and we have to let an ambulance person know what's going on, those are all limits to confidentiality. That's definitely a big thing. If you, if we have a, any concern that you can hurt yourself or somebody else, we need to protect you, the other person. So we will have to make a report. Yeah. Um. So these folks that uh, that find themselves involved in the court system for some drug or alcohol related offense, you know that's. Um, you know, I, th- I think that the number that gets thrown out of you, for example, are arrested for DUI. Uh, the total cost of a DUI, they say, is about $10,000. Um, I think that, t- that factors in a lot of different things, but that's a lot of money. Um, and, and I would imagine there's similar uh, financial burden associated with other drug and alcohol-related offenses as well. And, and yet uh, people who are in that situation may find themselves being told that they have to go to treatment as well. Uh, how do you, how is that handled? What, what are some of the financial obstacles for the folks that are ordered to come see you? And how do you deal with those financial obstacles for them so you can kind of clear the path for them to get the help they need? That is definitely one of the biggest obstacles to treatment. Court ordered is especially hard because a lot of times insurance companies are not going to pay for court ordered. They're kind of, you know, this is something that you did. You have to take care of it. As far as New Frontier and on-site go, we do try and offer very low pricing. Um, We're typically right around $45 a session, which is pretty unheard of. A lot of times agencies are more, um, and it's understandable why they are more because it's a service and it's you're paying for professional, but we do try and low, keep the cost low as one of the barriers to prevent one of the barriers. Um, we try and offer, for example, like, I don't want to say like a payment plan, but you know, you can usually like start the process and then work up into your sessions. You, there's also other programming. We might try and talk with the client if they do have insurance and, and suggest different places. We are also in the process of becoming paneled by insurances. Right now we do accept Medicaid, but we're working on accepting many other insurances. So hopefully that will be something that we can help with. And definitely with the specialty courts like sobriety court, mental health court, because there's an underlying issue there, it's a lot easier to get coverage because you do have a substance abuse problem. You're not just coming in because someone told you to. You do need help. You do need services. What are uh, what are some of the other obstacles people have to getting to you? The other obstacle I see a lot is transportation. So if you get especially a DUI or even repeated drug offenses, like say a second possession of marijuana case, your license can get affected. There's different ways. It can be suspended completely for a year. It can be restricted for the first, say, six months or 30 days. So people, if... Um, they don't have a license at all, trying to get to one of the locations. If, if, when you think about finances, if you're paying all your court fines and you don't have the best vehicle and your vehicle breaks down, so yeah, definitely finances and transportation are the key things. We do try and operate pretty close to bus lines as much as we can. We will help clients find bus tickets or lower costs for the bus if need be, um, but that's definitely a big obstacle. One of the things that uh, one of the things that I'm curious about when we're, when we're working with court ordered clients is there's um, uh, there's there's almost what what we could kind of perceive as conflicting interests. In other words, the court and the all the court officers and probation departments and so on. Um, first of all. I, I would imagine you would agree with this statement. I, I, I know we work with many, 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 many probation departments. Uh, and I don't have a, a really a bad word to say about any of them. All the people that I know that work at, as probation officers are 
have large caseloads. They're they work very very hard and have the best interests of their of everybody involved. Um, I completely agree. Yes. But but I think inherent maybe maybe I'm wrong too, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong. But sort of inherently, uh, th there's a different interest there in that the the interest of the court in general is is overall public safety. So if somebody is engaged in in criminal behavior, DUI, drug drug related behavior, that's putting themselves or other people at risk, uh, you know, it's a duty of the court to intervene and make sure that behavior stops. So there's a you know the, the public safety versus uh, you know somebody who's doing the clinical work, whose in interest is in treating that individual, wh who may have a a chronic relapsing disease, and so the the it it may be that you know the the interests are sort of conflicting there on some level. Does that make sense? And how how does how how does how is that worked out? I know what you mean because um, as a lot of people talk about addiction, part of addiction is relapsing. Um, that a lot of people don't just go, they don't just stop and stay stopped. There might be a relapse or a slip. Um, and with the courts, if there is a violation, where a violation being that a client tests positive for drugs or alcohol, then they might have they would handle it differently than differently than I, I would as a clinician. So as a clinician, we would work through what happened, you know, triggers. What was it that led to that slip? How do we? get away from those triggers, how do we make things better? Um, the courts may have to put out a violation. Um, there might be some form of a consequence kind of put out there. In my experience with the courts, so they want to see the clients um, sober just the way that I do. So they try and do as much as they can. So sometimes with violations, it may be keep going to counseling or maybe increase your counseling. Uh, it might be it's usually not something long-term that would inhibit them from being able to complete their counseling or things that would actually help their sobriety, in my experience. When I talk to groups of people who, who you know, are not as well-versed in all of this as, as people that work in the field are, and I talk about treatment, I often use the analogy of a ladder. And there's different rungs on the ladder, and people who are uh, you know, people that come to you, you will assess them. Uh, you you do your evaluation, you do your interview, you do all of your all of that. The biopsycho social evaluation, as you described, as kind of just an overall history, and you decide what rung on that ladder they start. And 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 they'll in a this is an oversimplification, but they will either be successful on that rung or they won't. And if if they are, then maybe they can graduate to a lower rung. Yeah, but if, if they're not successful in this rung, perhaps they need to move to a higher rung. Um, and so in a scenario where you have somebody who has been court ordered to see you and you you do your evaluation and you uh, decide on a course of treatment and that course of treatment involves drug screens and they have a failed drug screen. And I would imagine that, you know, it's your 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 duty to report that to the court. Do you, do you generally find that the court will um, will sort of leave it to you to decide what should happen there uh, in terms of, you know, do they need more treatment? Do they need a, a different level of treatment rather than uh, punishing them for uh, violating probation or is it some combination of both? combination of both. Um, usually it is up to me to decide uh, if there needs to be an increase, how much of an increase. Um, I can, you know, they let me, allow me to like look for resources to help clients, perhaps more support group meetings in addition to the treatment, things like that. There may be some court penalties that come along with it. Every court is different with those penalties. So there are those, and sometimes those serve as a, a motivator for the client. Um, many of my clients, especially at first, the fear of going to jail is a big motivator. So sometimes, and not that jail is 
an automatic guarantee if you test positive. Um, they, I think the court tries to use different consequences as a way to motivate individuals to continue their program. Sometimes we need those outside influences to help us keep doing what we need to do. Yeah. All of the data that we have on our um, assessment instruments, all of it, uh, is very clear. The, the number one drug of choice is always alcohol. Number two is always marijuana. Uh, in in and then um, and then there's lower numbers going on from there. Uh, but generally, those folks that um, complete the needs assessment or one of our other assessments identify it in that order. But one of the things that we are you know, we can't really get away from it. it's in the news all the time is the increase attention anyway, increase focus certainly on opioids. Um, I saw uh, I don't know if you saw the news story the other day. Uh, I was watching the news and they had a, a sort of a breaking news about the surprising news about Tom Petty's death. Um, his autopsy, mm. his autopsy results came out, and and he died of an accidental overdose. And I, in, you know, I, I thought to myself, well, I, that wasn't really very surprising at all. We, we, you know, that the we've seen the impact that opioids is having, not only on folks like Tom Petty, but on folks that that live in our neighborhoods and and uh, work where we work and, and, and family and all that. You know, I'm, I'm, my family is, is not alone. My family knows people who have been touched by this. Is, are, are you seeing an increase in uh, clients coming to you that uh, are using opioids or have had issues with opioids? We are seeing an increase, though we do primarily work with clients who have alcohol or marijuana offenses, while the clients who have um, issues with opiates tend to get a, a higher level of care, whether that, I mean, typically inpatient, first and foremost, because you need to break out of that system that you're in, um, your whatever, your circle around you. So inpatient tends to be where many clients that are addicted to heroin go first. Well, that makes perfect sense. When you know you talk about it, what, certainly the need for some kind of medically managed intervention to it, certainly to get through any kind of initial withdrawal from that anyway. Um, but it seems to be it, it seems to be quite a, a an area of of attention. When I was uh, I flash back to uh, uh, when I was in working in inpatient uh, back in the late 1980s. We, we created a specific treatment track. So even within our inpatient program, we, we created a specific treatment track for treating what we were seeing as the, quote, epidemic, unquote, of the time, which was uh, crack cocaine. So this was in the in the late 1980s, and that you know, and 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 uh, I don't want to get into that right now. But th there were uh, pros and cons of doing that kind of thing within our treatment program. Uh, there are definite pros, and there were definite cons. Um, flash forward to about let's say seven years ago, seven or eight years ago. Now I I happen to uh, travel around the country uh, quite a bit uh, to speak, and and I was somewhere in a hotel, and I, and I got the USA Today paper. And uh, one of the articles on the front page of the USA Today, uh, it struck me, it was about the need for more money and more treatment for what was the, quote, epidemic, unquote, at that time, which was methamphetamine. And now we're having the same conversations about opioids. And some of the efforts there, some of the efforts with treatment. I know there's a legislative effort here in Michigan to limit certain opioid prescriptions to seven days versus 30 days. And so there's a, a legislative effort in intervention. Uh, the state of Michigan has created a database for uh, prescription drugs um, that didn't exist before. So there's those kinds of interventions. But, but it sometimes strikes me that the more things change, the more they stay the same. 
And I don't want to be so cavalier as to say, you know, a drug is a drug is a drug and addiction is addiction. But there is some truth to that, isn't there, Amy? I think there's definitely things when I think about like helping with addiction or how to go into recovery from addiction, no matter what it is, whether it's alcohol or crack cocaine or methamphetamine or anything, there's definitely certain things that we want to help with um, that will help the client move towards recovery or maintain their recovery, you know, whether that be support group meetings, changing your routine, developing a whole new routine, avoiding triggers, um, changing your thought processes. There's just so many things, and that tends to, I see, go along all different types of addiction. And even when you step out of drugs and alcohol and go into other types of addiction or habits that aren't healthy for us, a lot of it can be used all across the board. Yeah, to treat that compulsion, that compulsive behavior. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that that's sort of the age-old question. You know, is, is addiction a genetic disease or is it is it something else? And um, uh, we had a, a lengthy conversation here in the office not too long ago about the difference between addiction and dependence. Um and, you know, we, uh, I, I may be dependent, if I'm a, a diabetic, for example, I may be dependent on insulin, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm addicted to insulin. That, you know, there, there, there is a difference there. Um, and, uh, you know, that, I, I think that we were having a conversation at that time about the change from the DSM-4 in 2013 to the DSM-5 and how the language changed, how how in the DSM-4 you could diagnose somebody with uh, substance abuse or substance dependence. And then that, that language changed to now the DSM-5, um, you know, folks are diagnosed with a substance use disorder, you know, with varying severities. And I, so... And, uh, yeah, that change is interesting. I know it's very controversial, but I, it does allow, I've noticed in my diagnosing, a little bit more freedom because maybe someone fell in between abuse and dependence. They were having the issues now with substance use disorder and the severity levels. I can pinpoint their, their symptoms and what they're actually having problems with, I find much more accurately. Yeah, I, 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 I like it too. I like that sort of sliding scale feature of it where you can... You can have a disorder of varying severities. Um, anyway, I think we're getting we're getting uh, a little technical there, but um, but just you know helping uh, folks understand. You know we uh, you know those of us that work. I guess it's true in any field that you're in. Every field has its own language, um, and if you know if you dropped us into uh, a room full of uh, mechanical engineers, they would speak in a language, you know, and using whatever terminology or acronyms they use that we wouldn't understand. And, uh, you know, so you take somebody who, um, with very little understanding of what, what, the, what substance use disorders are, finds themselves standing in front of a judge who uh, says, okay, uh, based on this information here, here's what you have to do. You have to go see Amy over at on-site and she's going to do all these things that that it's got to be it's got to be an intimidating process because I it, it uh, uh, as I mentioned I was sitting in a courtroom not so long ago it happens very fast you know you stand up in front of that judge and they say boom 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 and then literally they you know the gavel is is, is knocked down and you got to and you have to figure out what what does all that mean it, it's got to be a little bit intimidating and so, uh, and then I go over and I see Amy and Amy starts talking to me about all this sort of thing. And I think sometimes we need to remind ourselves that uh, people that don't work in this field have a hard time grasping the concept of what a substance use disorder might be or what recovery might entail. Yeah, it's very important to me with my clients because many of my clients tell me that they almost go into... It, I try to gotta describe it by even like a tunnel vision where they're like, I know the judge was talking to me and he was telling me things, but I didn't fully get everything that they were saying. I'm confused. I don't know what all this means. 
So it's really important to me when they come in to sit down, and first and foremost, I always want people to know, like, this is judgment-free. We are here to listen to you. We are here to help you. A lot of clients, I think, get a little worried because, I don't want to say the court is about judging, but it's very, like, this is what it is. This is your charge. Here's what you have to do. So this is the first place a lot of times the clients get a chance to come and talk and explain how they're feeling about what they've been through, what's going on, what to expect. So I always want them to know that I will not be judging them in any capacity, that we're just here to help them fulfill some of their requirements, and if we can help improve their life or help them accomplish some goals that they've been wanting to, that this is the place to do it. And then we go into explaining what the process is, what the intake will be, what information will be sent to the court. Um, we'll be developing a treatment plan. So that's one of my favorite things because it, gets a ch- it gives the clients a chance to sit down and talk about their goals, their objectives, what some of their problems may be. And like I like to tell clients, it's all-encompassing. So it isn't just, I think a lot of clients think, oh, we're just going to come here and talk about marijuana. Yeah. Well, no, what's some other things in your life going on that could be influencing your marijuana use or could make it tricky to stop smoking marijuana, even though, part of you wants to because the court has said you need to stop. So just explaining it step by step in simple terms every part of the way so that they're aware of what the, what's going on, what they're getting into, and how it can be helpful for them. That must be very comforting for them once they finally get to sit down with you and you take a breath and, and you know have it explained to them in that way. Um, the, the, the court system... You know, it, it is very matter of fact, you know, th- this is what's going to happen. Here's what you have to do. And and they move on. What about, though, you, you while you were talking, I was thinking, what about somebody who uh, maybe English isn't their first language? How difficult must that be to, to, to navigate through that? Do, do you have? Oh, it's very difficult. Yeah. Do you find? Um, we usually do, have an interpreter. Yeah. Um. I, yeah, I would imagine that would just make it infinitely much harder to understand what's happening. Uh, or, or folks who are or maybe that uh, can't read or write or, or comprehend very well uh, all of this information they're being given at the court. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times we do have that. We have, I've had interpreters come in um, and sit with clients so that we can go through things together and help explain it. Even even but with even with an interpreter, sometimes it's hard. Or I've had clients who were deaf, so kind of like working through uh, reading lips, writing things down. Clients who cannot read and write, and just kind of explaining at whatever whatever level they need to have it explained to them, whatever makes the most sense. So it's always adapting, always trying to explain in a way that makes the most sense to the client and makes it the easiest for the client to engage in. You know, I realize that I'm, I'm sort of bouncing all over the place, but when we were talking about substance use disorder and diagnosing and all that kind of thing, it occurred to me, though, not not everyone who comes to you is going to have a is going to be diagnosed with a substance use disorder. Um, just because I had a DUI offense or a drug offense doesn't necessarily mean that I that I meet the criteria for a substance use disorder. Um, is that a fair statement? It, that is, I mean, on the most basic level, because you had a legal issue, it's a little bit easier to diagnose towards a substance use disorder, even on a mild level, because now your substance use has led to some type of inappropriate behavior. But you're right, you're completely correct that sometimes if it's their first one, um, and we don't always get DUI, sometimes we get someone who's being a little bit of, you know, a little bit rowdy in public, and not that that's great, and not that that's what you want to do, but it's different than operating a vehicle. Um, and sometimes it's all about what led to that. So why were you drinking so much that you got to the point of intoxication of being loud or, or being different than you would normally be? And sometimes that could be a mental health disorder. It could be family stressors. It could be any number of things. Yeah, yeah. But is the goal uh, always total abstinence? For court-ordered, that would be the goal just because they're testing. So that is definitely one of the goals is to make sure that they can stay abstinent through 
probation. And, and one of the things I talk to clients about, because clients do um, struggle with that idea sometimes, is that sobriety is an okay thing to be. It's a good thing to be. Even, you know, even if you weren't court-ordered, it's not always a bad thing to not do any mind-altering substances. You can be more clear-headed. You can make different decisions. You can change your social circle. That's a big thing that a lot of clients struggle with. It's all my friends go and drink or all my friends smoke. Well, how about bringing new people into your social circle that don't drink or don't smoke? Yeah. Um, so I think abstinence is definitely something I, I really like to encourage. Amy, if you had a if you had a magic wand, what what thing or things would you improve about the the relationship between the courts and substance abuse treatment providers? Gosh, I think the what I think would make it the most easiest would be money. If there was more free programming out there or more grants for people to get access to court-ordered substance abuse treatment services, I think that would help immensely. It would help the clients. Um, it would make them more able to cooperate. I have a lot of clients that will tell me, oh, I love this so much, I just wish it was free because this would be something that I could do for years or things like that, and also transportation. So like those, those two barriers that sometimes aren't really thought about or aren't really, I think sometimes clients feel like aren't cared about, if we can somehow stop those barriers from happening, that would make a huge difference for people because that would take away a level of stress that they're going through too. I was talking to a guy not too long ago. He's a he's on the uh, city council of a, of a local uh, city by where I live. And they are uh, debating um, the all re issues related to uh, legal marijuana. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, issues around, you know, like granting licenses for distribution and growing and all of that. So we were sort of talking about the nuts and bolts of that kind of legislation. But one of the things that he said, one of the arguments for legalization of marijuana is that the monies raised could be used to do just the things you're talking about. Which that would remain to be seen. <laughs> that would remain right. to, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, uh, now of course you and I are both in the state of Michigan. I think that sooner rather than later, the state of Michigan is going to make a decision about uh, legal recreational marijuana. Uh, I know there's efforts to put it on the ballot. I know there were efforts in 2016. I'm sure there's going to be efforts here in 2018. Uh, I think sooner rather than later, will uh, the state of Michigan will be asked to make a decision about that. Along with, along with. Probably. Go ahead. Oh, I say probably this year. It seems I think it will be on the ballot this year. So it's going to be interesting to see how the voting goes for it. Well, I think the polling, you know, indicates that, that the majority of people are for it, but, you know, it still remains to be seen. But, you know, if, if in fact, it were to happen, if um, some of that money raised went to addressing some of the things that you're uh, seeing as obstacles, you know, more money for people to access treatment, uh, I think that'd be a, that, that would be a nice consequence of that kind of decision. It would be, it would, I would... Appreciate that. It would, if we, the more we can do to help that, I think the more benefit we can have to clients. Amy, I, I, I'm sure I've kept you long enough. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Can you? Um, how about a, how about you leave us with a success story? Some, do, you have, do you have one that comes to mind? my work I do with sobriety courts so different cities have different types of sobriety court and usually what it is it's a very um, multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary process where judges and probation officers and therapists and drug testing agencies and support group meetings and they're all kind of working together so some of those are some of my favorite stories where you see a client start um, at the beginning of the process and they're and they're scared and they're overwhelmed and they have all of these requirements and they don't know what to expect, and they're not sure how they're going to do it all. And then you just see the progress through where six months down the line, they've been in treatment, and they've been sober for six months, and they're feeling great, and they're um, 
continuously working their programs and then nine months and, and they're still making those gains and there might be a slip but then everybody's working together to, including the client to get back on track and, and keep it going and then they get to graduate and I've been to um, some sobriety court graduations and it's just such a wonderful feeling it's you take all of this hard work that the client has done and, and it's hard work and you they get to say that they did it they remain sober for two years and all, usually it's this change and that change and all these wonderful things they've added to their lives. And you see the proud look on the judge's face and the probation officer's face and the client's face. And so that's one of my favorite parts of the job. I, I'm, I imagine it is. I, you know, I know some probation officers. I know some uh, uh, sobriety court judges. And, and they echo exactly what you said. That graduation day is a proud moment for everybody. Um, and especially the client. So it's great. You know, the, the, I think that's a good way to sort of bring this full circle. You know, we've the, the relationship between the court and the treatment providers, maybe they have at times uh, con- conflicting interest and maybe sometimes uh, the courts uh, may seem a little bit matter of fact um, toward the client. Maybe maybe not as empathetic as the client might hope they they might be, um, but but at the end of the day, you you talk about those kinds of stories that marriage uh, works. And what's great, you know, you get a, you get somebody involved in in something like a sobriety court where there's a lot of different stakeholders involved, and you have this individual for a length of time, enough time to make a difference. Um, it's it's great, it's great, and so. Uh, you know, if I could say sometimes it's a shaky marriage, it certainly is a good one. Um, Amy, I, I just want to tell you, I, I, I really, really appreciate your time. This was, uh, this was great, and uh, perhaps sometime we can uh, do it again. I sure hope so. Thank you. It's really wonderful to be able to talk about this process and you know how people know that it is a safe and judgment-free zone and that we want this to be a good experience for them. Thanks for listening to this episode of the ADE Spotlight Podcast. If you would like to be a guest on one of our podcasts, or if you have an idea for a topic you'd like us to cover, please feel free to drop us a line. We'd love to hear your suggestions. If you haven't done so already, I encourage you to check out ADE Solutions, a new website from ADE. There you will find a variety of quizzes and assessments covering a whole range of behavior health related topics, including substance use, gambling, mental health disorders, eating disorders, and the like. If you have concerns about yourself or a loved one in these areas, uh, please uh, access the website and check out the assessments. Or if you simply want to expand your knowledge on these topics, On the education tab on that website, we have a variety of quizzes uh, as well as other podcasts similar to the one that you just listened to. You can find that at www.ade.solutions or you can link to it from our corporate website, www.adeincorp.com.